unwavering when we say Black Lives Matter. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show in Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan, and with us today is co-host uh, Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Hey there, VJ. Hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. So, um, our special guest is Cynthia Dewey Oka, who is the author of Fire is Not a Country 2021 and Salvage 2017 from Northwestern University Press and Nomad of Salt and Hard Water 2016 from Thread um, Makes Blanket Press. We're sipping of the Amy Clampett Residency to Pillow Quarterly um, Poetry Prize and Leeway Transformation Award. Writing has appeared in the Atlantic Poetry Academy of American Poets, Poetry Society of America, Hyperallergic, um, and elsewhere. Her experimental poem, Future Revisions, was exhibited at the Rail Park Billiard in Philadelphia in summer 2021. An alumni of the alumnus of the um, Warren Wilson MFA program for writers. She has taught creative writing at Bryn Mawr College and New Mexico State University, and with arts organizations such as Blue Stoop. Asian Arts Initiative, the Speakeasy Project, Kundiman, and the Ubud, Ubud uh, Writers uh, and Readers Festival. She's originally from Bali, Indonesia. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you for having me. And thank just a small correction, it's Cynthia Dewi, okay? Oh, Dewi, thank you. Sorry. Thank you so no much. No um, So now, yeah, why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about the arts and uh, how it can... Uh, in your pre-interview question, you said it changes people at the interior molecular level. So tell us a little bit about how um, the arts has changed you and that, and that level and, and how you kind of see your vision for your own art to uh, help, um, you know, change the reader. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think something that I really value about the arts is that they allow us to have a private and specific experience. Um, and, you know, I think works of art that are in particular um, more open-ended or more open to interpretation, they can sort of like invite us to ask questions of ourselves that we might not ask otherwise. Um, or, you know, like see aspects of ourselves reflected that... Um, we wouldn't have expected, if that makes sense. You know, I think growing up um, as both in Indonesia as like a Chinese Indonesian person, but then also later abroad um, as an immigrant, I never saw representations of myself. But I also, um, and I know this may not actually be like a popular thing to say, um, but I, I, it just never even occurred to me, if that makes sense, because the absence um, of representation of, like, seeing one's reflection was so total. Mm. So it, it, like, didn't even like, occur to me that I should be wanting or expecting um, to see Indonesians, like, in on television or prior to that Chinese Indonesians, like, anywhere, like, in, in literature. So to me, it was... Um, I think it allowed my imagination to like really leap, if that makes sense. Like it asked me to like jump um, to meet people who were like writing um, out of completely different experiences and to seek like points of connection 
um, that allowed me to then sort of um, figure out. It's, it's almost like you take something, you take a situation that has nothing to do with you, but you like are able to distill um, the essence of the experience or the emotional sort of um, the the emotional core of it. Um, the, the specific problems of it and then kind of reapply it to your life and figure out what to do. So I think that, you know, it's, I'm not saying that representation is not very, very important. I, I do think it's very, very important. And I also think that we have the capacity, like I absolutely um, believe that uh, we, we have the capacity to also like make those leaps um, when it's not available. Like I, I feel like I have to believe that as someone who has been, um, part of a minority, part of like a, an, a like an oppressed and historically persecuted minority, and a stranger in like all of the countries that I have lived in, um, if that makes sense. So I think to me that was like really one of the beginning, um, one of the starting points of like transformation. Um, art as like a transformative experience or something that I could use to like make sense of my life. Um, and I, I don't know if that makes sense. So I think I I hope. For, you know that I, I hope to offer the same with my work uh, because I also continue to write. I, I write as a stranger in North America um, to uh, an English-speaking audience, so like uh, readers who most of the time know nothing um, about where I come from. So like I, I move forward in my writing on the faith that. Um, people can connect to the emotional core of the poems, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, wherever they mm. might be coming from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I, I had a mirroring experience with um, growing up and, and not really seeing the... Now the discussion has been about, recently in the past few years, it hasn't been a representation, but growing up, I, I also didn't really see um, that as being a concern of mine. Um, and every now and then, there'd be like a rare instance where Indian Americans mm. were portrayed and that kind of, uh, but later on I began to see like how, like with the problem with the poo came up, uh, as a documentary that was interesting for me to watch, um, and how the problem t- problems around short circuit and things like that. I think the, the, um, uh, Caucasian actor was playing an Indian, uh, character. So some, some, some things like that resonated with me but as you're saying i think the human experience ultimately is what we access when reading and, and and encountering art and um you know what we choose to amplify i think i i see it as a little bit of amplification like how we what we choose yeah. to amplify and i'd like to get your thoughts on that about the amplification aspect is that what we choose to amplify in our experience kind of produces the norm or produces a kind of normalization of that particular experience so what do you think about like um your experience around, um, you know, your experience internally and how and how you've approached it as, as in your art is normalizing it. Um, I'm sorry. Can you clarify in terms of normalizing the experience um, of the of the writer? Yeah, exactly. Was like, always like, you, maybe you haven't seen your experience reflected, a specific experience of yours mm-hmm. reflected in predominant art, and then you're trying to access mm-hmm. it so that then it becomes kind of. People, so people who have that experience will then resonate, or even people who haven't, like, will perhaps mm-hmm. begin to have an inroad into that experience. I think is what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really great question. Um, I, 
I am not, I'm not sure if like, you know, I'm not sure if, uh, for me, the way that I think about it is as normalization. I think it's more about, um, establishing another node from which to have a conversation about, um, a specific aspect of experience, uh, because I think in particular for um, folks who are writing out of, you know, historically minoritized or historic, like, or, or out of exile, you know, it's, it's almost like part of the experience is the fact that it is not normalizable, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It's like, um, so it, it's, uh, I, I think a lot about um, sort of Edward Said, um, I'm actually pulling up the quote right now. Um, hang on a because I, I think he was, you know, he, he talked about like occupying in like as, as exiles, like, uh, writers occupying this position that is at once, um, affiliation and critique of, mm. uh, of both the homeland of like both the homeland that like it now exists at, at, at a distance. And like, you were able to see it at, at, at a distance. And this is, something that's like really, really informed a lot of my writing um, because I grew up in a dictatorship um, in Indonesia where so much of our history was censored. And there's this irony where I couldn't, um, I wouldn't have been able to freely access or like to read about like those censored aspects of history if I hadn't moved abroad. Mm. So it was like, it was literally like I couldn't see my country until like I left my country mm. Mm. Um, because of internal um, political pressures and dynamics and processes that have to do with a legacy of colonialism, like an American imperialism, and then also like the patriarchy, you know. So um, I think that there's some, this is something that uh, Edward Said said, um, which I, you know, exiles feel... Um, Exile is strangely compelling to think about, but terrible to experience. It is the unhealable rift forced between a human being and a native place, between the self and its true home. Its essential sadness can never be surmounted. Um, and while it is true that literature and history contain heroic, romantic, glorious, even triumphant episodes in an exile's life, these are no more than efforts meant to overcome the crippling sorrow of estrangement. So I, I do think, and, and that really resonates a lot with me, um, like on, you know, in, in the sense I'm like, I know what that sadness feels like. Um, but then also this, this kind of other recognition um, that we may, I think normalization sort of like requires the assumption that we can know something that we can know someone fully or that we can know we can access fully the other, like the other can become sort of uh, transparent to us uh, as like a majority or something like that. And I think that experience doesn't necessarily exist for, pe- for, for you know, different groups of people at different points in time who are required to kind of, who are like uh, assigned to play the role of the other in the world that is, um, constructed out of nation states. Is that because like that's that's you know the nation states needs people who are not of the nation state. Yeah, in other words, so, like I was, you know, yeah, we don't know, like we don't that. all necessarily want to be part of the hegemony, right? We don't necessarily want to be part of the overarching like power dynamic there that the um, 
that we don't, we want to kind of say as an outsider. In other words, you know, we want to kind of keep that retaining that outside. This is what I'm understanding is that there's a, there's a certain power in retaining the outsider status that then we can criticize or we can kind of be in dialogue with the main um, hub of uh, which is the holding most of the power and then be able to you know be able to have a relationship with that that is different from you know, being an insider, right? Is that what kind of what, what captures yes, what you're thinking? Like I th- yeah. yeah, and you know, I, I don't, like, I, I really do have to, I don't know that I would say it was, um, if, if, that it felt like power, but I would say that it felt more like um, there's a certain kind of autonomy, you know, and there's like a, a like, a, it's like an autonomy of the soul, and there is a heavy cost. Like, right, like, and that's the thing, like, it comes with a very heavy cost. And I don't know that that autonomy necessarily translates to power. I don't think, like, that is necessarily the experience of, for example, like, immigrants, like, in the United States or refugees. It's not like folks, like, end up, like, in positions of power. Um, but I think that, like, like, uh, there, it doesn't mean that, like, I have a friend who, who said this thing, you know, and it stuck with me for a long time because um, it really, the in-between is a place, too. Yeah. It also makes me think of cultural appropriation, so like that, yeah. um, how the stories of immigrants, stories of people on the margins can't be told by the mainstream. You know, cultural appropriation yeah. would be an example of kind of what you're, I think, an illustration of something of, of what you're saying, what I understand, is that, like, you know, we have, like, the, the people in the mainstream t- telling stories about people who are coming into the country and, and they're not, they're like appropriating those stories. They're not necessarily ownership of them, would you say? You know, is that kind of an illustration of what you're saying? Or what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think, I think people, I think America needs to have a very specific, like, you know, it, it likes uh, a, a very, it likes a, a particular narrative for immigrants. It's like, it's either, you know, you are barbarians, like, knocking down the gates if you're, like, on the right. And then if you're, like, on the left, it's like, oh, my God, like, you poor victims of, like, yeah. the world. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and it's just, it's like, it's either you're, like, villains or victims. And that's, yeah. like, so... and um, It's so incredibly boring to me. Because... <laughs> um, Everybody, you know, it's like immigrants are just people too, and like some of us are, and, and, and all of us have like victimized and villainous qualities. Um, and then there's this sort of like, uh, I think the, the, there's this thing that happens particularly in the United States and like kind of like the literary landscape is, you know, people are interested in your experience once you're in America. So it's like as though like there wasn't a life before you came here. It was like as though you were only shaped by your contact with the American border. Like, that's when you were born. And that's when your story becomes interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's like, it's not, right? It's like people come as, like, like fully-fledged human beings um, who have been, you know, often touched by um, American, European colonialism, et cetera, but also by like, the politics of their own culture um, for generations. Like, we are, we are shaped by so much more than that contact with the border. Right. Yeah, I, I was. But intru- that's like what ends up happening here. It's like, and and I think that you know that does have to do with the interest of like the dominant society to sort of like tell immigrant stories in a particular way in order to reinforce um, American identity. Whether it's like that, you know, we we all have to be white, or we all we are multicultural, or whatever. But it's like it's it's interested in itself. It's not interested in like 
what people coming who are forced to come most of the time um, have to say about it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know. I understand. I understand what you're saying. And then it's interesting. Uh, it, maybe we can go into a little bit of your immigrant story and a little bit of how, you know, you, you're able, you, you, the specifics around your journey so then they can get kind of an example of the empowering narrative that can be told around this um, around this, this genre, yeah. if you will. Yeah, and, I, and particularly I'd like to, you to comment a little on, um, you had mentioned you had learned English uh, from, from books. You, you self-taught, self-taught English. Um, and yeah. like picking it up from books struck me that you're not inherently hearing necessarily any of the rhythms of the speech. Uh, that's coming, I guess, from you, unless there's some outside sources with which you're, uh, which you're learning the English, but how that developed, and also, yeah, from Indonesia, where where your kind of first stop uh, actually was. Uh, yes, yeah. so my my family uh, migrated from Indonesia at the very end of like 1995 when I was like 10 years old, and we relocated to um, Richmond, British Columbia, which is like a town just outside. It's like it's, it's in the greater Vancouver area. Mm. So it's just it's like 20 minutes from Vancouver. And um, when I and so I started going to elementary school um, here, like in January 1996, like in the middle of the year. And, um, you know, there there was an ESL program in the school, but it was so um, completely tailored for Mandarin and Cantonese speakers. Um, that within the first um, couple of days of me attending, because like you know, like I didn't speak English, so like I was assigned to go to to the ESL program. The ESL teacher actually took me physically out of the class, and she was like, "I can't help you." Mm. And so she like left me in the library because she didn't know what to do with me wow. um, because the class like I couldn't. Uh, the class was for Mandarin and Cantonese speakers. Um, which is, you know, very, very different from Indonesian. And Indonesian itself is also very different from English. So, like, I, it wasn't, like, my choice to, like, self-teach English. It was because there was nothing. Like, there was no other Indonesian speaker in school except from my, my little sister. And so, I, and I did feel, like, an immense pressure um, as a child to um, get fluent very quickly. I needed to help my parents, like, apply for jobs, Um so that's what I did. I just like, I would just sit there um, during ESL hour, during reading hour, during lunch, during recess, like after school and just like read. Right. And um, I think that was a really good observation on like, I, you know, um, me not hearing right. the, the rhythm of the English language. I don't, um, you know, like the, the, the area that we moved in um, was, it was really diverse, like, because it was a catchment area for a lot of, like, refugee populations. So, like, I heard, in, like, I heard very different kinds of Englishes around me. Like, there wasn't, like, one kind of English because almost all of the English speakers in school were, like, immigrants. So they, they all came from some, somewhere else. And so, um, and, you know, their Englishes would be, like, inflected by the patterns um, of their own native tongue so like that was the norm of English that I entered into as an oral experience as a you know as a heard experience um 
But I was also like reading because I loved epic. So I was also reading, you know, like the Three Musketeers and uh-huh. like the Tales of like King Arthur. So like a lot of like these stories that that were written in pretty elaborate English.、Mm. Um, and so I had this, you know, it was really funny. I think about like six months, and I had this. There was this huge gap between、um, my vocabulary because my vocabulary was so big from like reading、um, like these more complex texts,、um, but like my、uh, my speak like I still struggled like to 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 be understood when I spoke because my like Indonesian、um, accent was still so heavy、uh, because like I wasn't practicing. It wasn't like I was I was intaking English more as a visual. Experience and that still affects me to this day. It's like there are times when people will spell words out、um, that I'm just like I can't follow. I'm like I have to see it.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah,、um, yeah. Because it's, it's such a visual experience for me. Or like I, I, it's hard for me to listen to podcasts for like a,、um, for like hour long podcasts、mm. um, because it's it's just like the language is is more of a.、Um, Yeah, it's like it's more of a visual experience. No, it's so, so、like、true.、One. I mean, I, I like to see the letters too sometimes, and then you know you can kind of rearrange them in the heads to make the sentences to、yeah. put them in the order.、Um, and I guess you know that that's that's kind of where where a poet is born. And can you tell kind of where poetry for you、uh, found found its way kind of into? I mean, you're going from these epics to then a little bit more、uh, traditionally <laughs> short form, but、um, yeah, where、right. where where that caught your attention. Um, well, I think there was, you know, like my, I、uh, was raised. I think、uh, I was raised in a really Christian family, so、um, my parents had me like memorizing and reciting the Psalms. That's、mm. like my first. It was like the first words I spoke were actually memorizations of the Psalms. Like when I was like two and a half years old, when I was like three, like you know, I'd be like able to like recite them on command. <laughs>、um, So there was also, and because like I grew up in a heavily like oral、um, culture, in the sense of you know prayers were like poems, like the way that people like would speak to God was very poetic. Like they thought about it, like it was like、um, it was very poetic language. So there was already this kind of like internal cadence、um, and an internal understanding of like rhythm. It was like it's, it's like in my it's like in my body. If that makes sense, because it was start. It started so early. The training for that started so early.、Um, so yes, I, de- I definitely had to like. It changes with English, but like the principle itself doesn't, you know. And、um, so I think the other, the flip side of like learning of learning English visually that way. From books was like the way I actually like learned to start being able to speak English comfortably was from listening to hip hop and rap.、Oh. Um, it was like yes, and、Love、I think it. it's it's like I think the cadence helped. I think the fact that I could like memorize, you know, it's like there's like you there's like a beat you can like go to. Like that、mm-hmm. was that really helped me. Like I was like listening to like Tupac and like Biggie and.、Mm-hmm. Um, Any Canadian you know, rappers at the time? Practicing. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I was just saying, any Canadian rappers at the time that you were exposed to? I don't think so, honestly,、right. because we were like in Vancouver, so it was like everything. Like we just inherited like the West Coast culture, including like the feud. Gotcha. <laughs> I know that they're known、um, for some good performance poets、uh, in Vancouver that I've been exposed to, but、uh, that's great with the hip hop and. 
Yeah, so that that was like a that was really big for me. Like I remember, like when I discovered like Bone Thugs and Harmony, I just like lost my mind. <laughs> like lost it. I was like, this is so amazing. Um, so that that was that that I think that was the thing was it yeah. was just like on that that also like kind of you know matched up even though it's like a complete again it's like a totally different language totally different context like content wise very different from the psalms um but there's something about like the orality of it you know like the fact that you're um there is the the language the the delivery of the language depends on your body i think that's the thing where i start with like poetry because it depends on how long you like how long your breath is yeah it depends on how fast you can talk. It depends on your stamina, like you know. So I think that um, that also like helped me eventually get to poetry. Um, but I, I actually like didn't really. Um, I, I was like much more into writing. I, I wrote short stories all through my teens. I did visual art mostly, like I did photography, I did painting, I did sculpture, like I did all of these things. Um, and I really began to write poems after I had my son because I had my son very young. Um, I was like 17 and I had to give up um, wanting to go to art school because of it. And um, a couple of years into being a mom, I was like working um, a few jobs at a time. I was putting myself through college, but there was, you know, the creative impulse, like it needed an outlet. So like, that's how the poem started was like, I was like writing on like napkins and mm. between work shifts or like on my textbooks um, and things like that. Because there was like no other medium, you know, like Audrey Lorde says, like poetry is the most economic form. And it's like, that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And also you're talking a little bit about, um, the, as you start to touch in here about the intergenerational aspects of the immigrant story and how, you know, there's a lot of times that's a very, that's also one of the narratives about um, the immigrant stories about kind of coming to the country and kind of the, the kind of the intergenerational intergenerational um, traumas uh-huh. that happen and carrying with that and kind of, kind of reconciling that aspect to it um, uh-huh. and kind of rec- and reconciling uh-huh. what happened in the past and also giving a legacy to your future generation, to the future generations that will, uh, they'll be able to understand and kind of assimilate or uh, kind of integrate in together the, um, the different narratives, different threads. So tell us a bit of mothering about being a mother and how uh, you bring together, you know, the Indonesian side to you and the, the American narrative and kind of being able to criticize the American narrative or, or give a critique to the Indonesian narrative to your children, to your son. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, uh, I think, I mean, I had a very um, not normative experience as a mother as well. Um, I think it's like, it's interesting because I feel like mothering is, you know, it's constructed as both like in my homeland and in Canada and here as sort of like, this is the, this is the woman experience, you know, Mm. um, but I felt very, you know, uh, I was, I was, I felt very, it, it was very different for me because I had a child when I was not supposed to have one, you know? So it was actually like, a being a mother at 17 allowed people to like, see me not as a woman and allowed people not to see me as a girl also, like, and also allowed people not to see me as a human being. <laughs> 
So um, it was, it was like a second, I think that is probably like the second, like most exiling experience I ever had was actually being a mother. Like I felt exiled from womanhood. I felt exiled from girlhood. I felt exiled like in, in all these, as an immigrant daughter, you know, so it was like the worst possible thing you could have done as an immigrant kid. Um, and so what that did for me was it, I think like, I think for me that it made me very humble. It was like very, it was a very humbling experience. And I like, I didn't, I had to focus on like graduating from high school. Like while I was pregnant with him, I was like not reading all of these, like, you know, how to be the perfect mom books. Like it was just like, I don't know. I didn't have time. I had to like read my, I had to like figure out calculus. Um, and when I, when I had him, um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty traumatic experience with the hospital as well. So like a lot of the things that are supposed to, you know, kind of be like these milestones of like, um, what it means to bring a life as like a woman. It's like, I just didn't have, I just didn't have those experiences Mm. and the humility um, and the loneliness of that, I think, actually, um, I responded to it by um, being, you know, like, I, I, I really tried to build a community around my child when he was little um, of other of people that I deeply respected, um, because I was like, I can't do this. Like, I don't trust myself. Like, everybody tells me I'm bad. I'm like, maybe I'm, like, bad for this child and like I have to be able to ask for help so like I it's like I didn't have pictures of like I'm gonna have the I'm gonna be the perfect mom and have the perfect kid it's like no it's like I I need to like raise this person and like I don't know how to do it for myself so like I need to to like ask for for advice and for support and I need to like apologize when I have made a mistake and if I if I can say anything about you know like I, I feel like people should really um interview children about like their experiences of being mother so like and I don't know what my son would say about it but I would say that the best thing that I learned to do as a mother was apologize I mean that was the most important thing was because like it's it you just fuck up so much you like mess up so often as a as a person um and I think the ability to just be like I am not the sole authority I could be wrong um, let's negotiate this. Let's talk about this. Let's hear how you feel. Because I didn't, I couldn't assume myself to be like a, a total authority in his life. I think that's been like one of the best things um, about our relationship. So we remain very, very close to this day. And in terms of like, and I do think, and, and I bring that up because it is connected to intergenerational trauma. Because I think a lot of the time, I mean, definitely I experienced it in my life. And I have spoken openly about this as my mother. We've done a lot of, like, repair and healing in the last few years. But, you know, people um, hurt people hurt people, right? It's like, that's, that's like a thing. It's like when, when we have um, entire popula- populations, like, subjected to incredible violence, oppression, um, terror, it's like it filters down into their families, like not, not just epigenetically, like through the uterus, like now there are studies about that, but through the behaviors that you have in the home and like often behaviors that are like intended to protect can also be really harmful. And if we don't develop sort of like the capacity to like name that and, or, and, and 
and talk about it openly with our kids and like apologize and like like ask for the input for like how to do better it's like I, I do think that's like how we end up with like lasting emotional damage um so in a way it was like because I was like a teen mom that like couldn't you know like I wasn't like fully formed as a as an adult with all of these ideas of who I was um there was a way in which uh I, I didn't have any ego in it if that makes sense Mm. You know, and it was it was just about like I didn't want to harm my child, right. and so we would talk about those things. And I, I feel like there were ways that I was able to sort of. Um, my mom certainly tried to like break a cycle of intergenerational trauma in, like you know, from from her to me and my sister. And I feel like I was able to like take another step towards that with my son. Um, and it is a long process. Like, I do think it's a multi-generational process. And I think as I, you know, become more mature as a mother, too, he's like 18 now, he started college. It's, we also, I can also see, like, the ways in which the work that I did was incomplete. And I have to trust that I gave him enough that he will be able to do yet another cycle of that with, um, children he may decide to have or care for in his life later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're kind of at the the halfway point, and I, I would love if we could uh, mm. hear maybe a poem, uh, either reflecting on the mothering experience or one that's kind of close to you right now, um, either you know from your uh, most recent collection. Um, if um, if you'd be so sure. kind to share share a piece with us, that would be great. Okay, I I can read this one. 21 Lessons in the Art of Embouchure. And embouchure is like a technique for, um, for like using uh, brass instruments, or like how you like literally put your mouth um, around the mouthpiece. 21 Lessons in the Art of Embouchure. There are right and wrong ways to put your mouth around the void in the metal. The mother is a hidden compound. The mother is a king, lonely and gray, whose crown of matches is alive. Prepare for harrow and beauty, their digressions. A coastline littered by boats and the dark dirt of desire is battered by the notion of universality. Blue and green, like a seam of locusts, intent that no grain of sand should escape what they cannot eat. Of its own realm, where the disc is chipped, it skips, repeating the same, please. Like a history of brokenness. Holding her own hand, the king hurries past the sea. A billion hind legs rubbing. This is how God is composed. Past the white arches of whales, toward the garden sanity, where someone is coming. Someone is coming is the hook of the song. I believed it with the strength of insects, the strength of kings. The boy abandoned to sunflowers makes his horn by mutilating his bowl. They are not so different from each other. Beauty and harrow, king and sunflower. The universal 
is hard of hearing. The mouth is a void, a compound of God that makes promises such as, I am coming, while the mother's belly dome, metallic, shines with questions. Was I clear enough, loud enough, unmistakable, sweet enough? The boy's blue lips are a digression. They bleed now around the hole music makes. Even light is suspended like a hooked fish in the hard, jeweled air. Dows your head between the hidden and the shut doors. Thank you, thank you. Wow, powerful. Thank you. Um, Fantastic. Embouchure. That's that's a great word, too. I remember thinking... Yeah, you, I, I learned about it. My, my son is a French hornist. Oh, that's, that's what I was going to ask, if um, there was an instrument yeah. connection. Because, yeah, I definitely... Yeah, I first heard it, and I played saxophone, I guess, in, uh, in, in school first hearing hearing of it and um i noticed that that you um have also started or teaching as well and um you had mentioned earlier you were talking a lot about you know learning from uh, one's mistakes or be, being able to own when when you might have done done something wrong do you have that same relationship mm-hmm. with students uh as well uh do you, do you, when when you're when you're speaking um teaching i guess creative mm-hmm. writing um, is there an infallibility? Um, how, what's that relationship and how does that relate kind of to motherhood and, and both to you as, a, as an artist? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, yeah, definitely. I, th- I think I have that orientation, I think, in general with, you know, um, anyone I've ever mentored um, or worked with. Like, I, I, try, to, I try to do that. Um, that I think, like, this idea, you know, again, like, I grew up under an authoritarian dictatorship where like whatever was above you cannot ever be wrong. You know? So it's like kind of baked into me that like, that is like one of the most violent things that can happen, you know, like the ways that like righteousness and correctness can get weaponized. It's like, um, it can, can silence entire people can erase entire people's memories. Like, you know, it's like I grew up in a country that very effectively gaslighted like 300 million people like it's crazy um so i think for me yeah i really try to do that um to be sort of like thoughtful um about crafting you know a syllabus that is challenging i think i do try you know i I really really have a deep commitment to um to exposing students to voices they would not otherwise hear. Because I'm just like, you know, like, if you want to read, I don't know, T.S. Eliot, like, somebody's going to introduce you to T.S. Eliot. Like, somebody's going to introduce you to, like, Auden. Like, I don't need to be that guy. (laughs) Um, So I think I I really try to have um, syllabi that, that challenges them, like, both formally, but also, like, in terms of, like, where people, where the poets are coming from. Um, And but then to not have, you know, I think I, I, not to have close discussions of like, this is what X must be, or like, this is what, um, I, 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 you know, like a metaphor has to be like this, or like a, you know, uh, a line break has to be like this. Like a lot of these things just like, don't even, 
that's not even how poets do it. You know, I think I just encourage them. I'm like, read, read and understand that there are conventions that are in place. And like those conventions are tied up with like historical movements and like also nation building projects. And we need to understand the conventions in order to understand how to intervene in them or like where you want to break them. So it's not about like inherit the conventions because they are correct. It's like inherit the conventions because that is like part of the craft that you are creating here in this time, in this place, like right now. You know, it doesn't mean that they're infallible. It just means that they are there. They're part of the field that you will have to contend with. And it's like, it would make me a bad teacher to like not introduce you to them so that you don't know what they are. Like you should know what they are and you should like be able to, decide on your own um, how you want to break them and how you want to innovate on them where you do want to deploy them like there have been you know like the sonnet is like one of the most time-honored tradition traditional forms in in English and it's like been getting you know uh, a revival like you know all the way from Gwendolyn Brooks to like Karen Pace with his sonnets and like recently like Diane Seuss um, so and you can, that's one, it's like a form can also change. You can also work within the, the bounds of like a convention and like make it work for you and the story that you want to tell and the voice that you want to, to kind of express or amplify. Um, and I try to like encourage lots of room for discussion and for questions. Um, and I, and definitely, yeah, I, I never, I, I do very much always try to take ownership of the fact that it's like, this is coming from me specifically as someone who is a practitioner and you're going to meet other practitioners and they're going to have different thoughts about this. Like, it doesn't mean that like my way is solid. Like the, it's like the, the, the true one way. <laughs> like, but if you're coming here, then this is what I have to share. Like, take what's useful, leave what's not, you know? Mm, I agree with that. Like, I'm not trying to make, like, little mini Cynthia somewhere, like, that's, yeah. like, creepy to me. <laughs> yeah. And also, it kind of ties together with what you were saying about, um, you know, when we talk about the meritocracy and all that criticism of the meritocracy and kind of understanding that, you know, kind of what the way people come to success is sometimes a very diverse path. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, yeah. not necessarily tied to you know, kind of how hard you work or how hard you, um, you know, how much you believe in yourself, all this kind of thing we were discussing in the pre-interview questions about how, yeah. yeah, if you could tie that together with kind of how you can kind of teach people, uh, teach your students and, and remind yourself about this kind of truth about American society. Yeah, I mean, I, I really do think it's, we are, it's, um, oh, I, I feel like freedom is like the most, it's, it's like America stands for freedom and America has also like wrecked freedom, you yeah. know? It's like freedom is actually like the most disciplinary and like awful thing right now in the way that it has been constructed in the United States. It's actually like fascist. Mm. Um, like, it, you know, it's, it, 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 it ends up, acting out as fascism, um, as incredible isolation, um, as people, you know, like who has quality of life like these days? Like have we just like working people are just like living to work and like exploiting themselves and then like on top I 
you know, like, I think as artists, especially as, like, poets, it's also, like, hilarious to me. Because like, you don't get paid to, like, write your poems. You know what I'm saying? It's like you write them first for free most of the time on your own time on top of your paid job, whatever it is you might be doing. And then maybe later, like, something comes of it. Like, you sell a book or, like, you get an award or, like, whatever. But it's, like, initial. And then on top of, like, that work where it's, like, already kind of, like, um, free labor. It's, like, on top of that, like, we are all, like, creating free content to, like, then promote our work on, like, social media. Mm. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. so awful it's just yeah. like the levels of exploit the, the, the various levels of exploitation that people are just like willingly subjecting themselves to it's just like it's a little crazy to me um and i think to many people you know and i and the, the freedom in america freedom in america is against like how much and how diversely can you exploit yourself you know um as opposed to like having a boss do it for you it's like you're just going to do it to yourself um <laughs> So I do think that, um, and, and I do think that that is tied up with like the idea of the meritocracy. It's like, you know, it's just like, except that now under neoliberalism, the meritocracy has shifted into like who can work the hardest and the longest and et cetera, et cetera. Whereas before it was more like, you know, who, I don't know, has like land owning dads. And like after that, it was like, who can get like a 1450 on an SAT or like whatever. And this kind of idea of, like, more non-traditional routes into the echelons of, like, the merit-worthy um, is now attached to this idea of, like, you work. And you work in as many possible ways that you can, and you hustle as hard as you can. And, like, who cares, like, what happens to your soul? Um, who cares what happens if you can actually enjoy your life? Who cares what happens if this or that? And... I'm not I'm not critiquing this because I am immune from it. I'm critiquing this because I definitely feel myself um, be a part of this like problem because I, I live here. Like I am subject to sort of like the same conditions. Right. Um, and and at the same time, like I think that we cannot begin to sort of like intervene in those processes and make different choices um, about what's important to us and like what's valuable to us what is worth protecting um, from that onslaught if we are not aware of it. Um, so I, I, I think I try to, um, you know, and it's like, and I, I try to, to, to share it and instill that in students there because at the end of the day, you know, it's like, what are you writing for? Are you writing so that you can get an award and get famous? And like, I mean, if, I think it's just better to be like honest about what you're writing. Mm. And I think one of the one of the I don't know if it was a benefit, but if I do, I I will say like it was a gift. One of the gifts that I had in terms of um, having a very non-traditional route, you know, as a poet, was that I had to keep coming up. I had to like really keep clarifying to myself why I was doing it, because there was no reason, there was no financial, logical, rational reason why I should do it when I had a full-time job, another part-time job, a kid. And, you know, it's like there was no reason, logically, for me to be writing poems. And when I was, like, outside of the academia, I didn't have an MFA. Like, who was going to take me seriously ever? It was like, so the, I had to become very clear about why I was writing, like, all the time. And it was just because I had to. 
Mm. Like I, I had, it was like a place where some part of myself could, um, I could protect. It was like I could quarantine, like a part of myself, like that otherwise would be infected by like capitalism and like colonialism and all, all of the logics that was like stealing my life for me on a day-to-day basis and making me work for their, their own interests. Like I got to sort of um, quarantine a fraction of my soul in yeah. my poems. And that gave me a reason to continue because at some point, like when you are like that exploited and that isolated, it's like the problem becomes when you wake up in the morning, it's like, why should I, why should I continue? Yeah. Why should I, I specifically continue? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. And so like, I think that became the, that was the reason that continues to be the reason for me. Um, and so I think it's helpful for folks to like, really check in um and i I try to to share this my students you know just like it's good it's good to be to check in with yourself but what's at stake for you when you write because none of this stuff like none of this external stuff cares about you like before trump like nobody thought writing poems that were overtly political was cool okay and now it's like this and and a bunch of us were doing it for years and being uncool yeah happened and Trump mid political poetry very cool it, yeah. he made it like something that sold and now everybody wants to do it <laughs> so <laughs> you know it's like that the stuff is like a lot of this stuff is like outside of your control like yeah. before it would have kept you out of the meritocracy and now it would like help you it will usher you into it right but yeah. it's like but that stuff is like independent from your relationship to like the poem and to the writing and to the act of creation and like what it means for you. So I think that's the part where I'm like, I always try to encourage people to be clear about that part. Yeah. I also want to tie together with the, with the idea of, um, of Nietzschean uh, power. Cause I think you mentioned this in the civic philosophies or civic yeah. works that changed your view of the world beyond good and evil uh, by Frederick yeah. Nietzsche. As being, uh, and I was interesting when you said, um, he helped me perceive identity as a tactical position rather than a stable container yeah. for some sort of divinely or historical ordained essence. Can you expand a little bit on that as a tactical position? Identity is a tactical position. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, um, identities are like made up, you know, like I think when I was okay, like now we are using the term BIPOC. Yeah, and then when I was, and then like fifteen years ago, it was people of color, and mm. then before that, it was a non-white, and before that, it was the colors. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? And and then yeah. it also changes in in different countries. Like it means different things. Like yeah. Britain has a different relationship to like the word black, like historically, for example, than like what happens like in the United States, because like the hist- the historical and the political movements have like use those terms in different ways to fight, to expand rights. Mm. And so I think for me, it's like, that's what I mean. I think identity is, is tactical in the sense that it is about signaling who you are with. Mm. And it is not about, it is signaling who you are with, like in, in sort of like a contest for power. And inside of that contest, you know, the stakes are again, like, like human rights for more people. Um, more dignified conditions of living for more people. Um, 
but that doesn't it's not uh it's not some sort of you know like there's something inherent about being an indonesian it's just like it's like there there isn't there's like no sort of um core thing that makes it that if that you know what i'm saying it's just like the labels keep changing like before indonesia was indonesia it was the dutch east indies mm. so um you know and like i am chinese indonesian and that's like a, an entire a whole other like complication like back home it doesn't really mean anything to people here but like back in indonesia it means very much like it means that you are the one percent minority that's been historically scapegoated mm. and that has a huge impact on how people lived mm. um where they lived how they live like who they associated with in order to be in order to protect themselves like what kinds of like um habits they had um on a very day-to-day basis so i think that's what i mean it's like identity is so tied up with like what power is doing, you know, and like where we are in relation to that power, how we are being articulated by that power. And like, what if, do we, do we choose it? Do we like integrate it? Do we fight it? How do we, how do we do that? Usually it's a mixed bag, right? Like, um, I don't know. Like I remember when I was coming up, like, like API wasn't a term and now it is now it's just like the, the abbreviations just keep proliferating. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know, like maybe five years from now, it'll be something totally different. Um, and it means what that means here, for example, like in the United States, is also really different from like abroad, right? Like we have this giant umbrella, like Asian Americans, like Pacific Islanders, like whatever. And so like everybody was like one big lump. And I'm just like, people don't even speak the same language across like, those regions in Asia Pacific, there's history of like um, uh, imperialism mm -hmm. also and colonization and vast brutality that we like, we don't talk about here, like about the fact that the Japanese also like colonized and brutalized Southeast Asian countries mm -hmm. during World War II, right? We only talk about World War II as it happens in Europe. Yeah. But, like, that is real. Like, those traumas are very real. That trauma is real in my family because, like, that's, they were displaced. Like, people lost their homes because of the Japanese occupation. People starved because of that. Mm. So, like, so then we are, like, here in the United States and we're supposed to, like, be all lumped in together and, like, have the same interests. It's like, well, I, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, right? It's, but it's, it's like, it's, it's, like, depending on the field, like, it just changes. Um, no, totally, totally. Yeah, and the stories we tell ourselves about our identity, about the the other identities, and these kind of narratives are very fluid. They're constantly changing, and being aware of that, at the very least, yeah. that they're not solid, they're not they're not you know kind of um, concrete, is is half the half the you know half the progress there. You know, have the battle there. Yeah. yeah. So outside of of, of books and um, and motherhood, mm -hmm. um, what are some other things that you do? feel make up your identity or, or other areas of interest for you, even even outside of poetry, that that feed your experience that might come back into your poetry, but but kind of um I guess yeah, make make uh, a little bit about who 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 you are now. Um other other areas of interest that are fueling you now that you're kind of thinking about or activities uh, mm. that you might do for, for mental health and, and that sort of thing. Uh yeah. That's a great question. Um, I think 
I mean, honestly, like sci-fi and fantasy are like, so important in my life. Mm. Uh, and I, I do think it's like related to, to the experience of like, uh, it's like world building and also world discovery, right? Because yeah. it's like you're always constantly at the same, like they're happening at the same time. It's like the world building happens at the same time. It's like you discover what the world, that world is. So there's something about like science fiction um, and fantasy literature and also television series. It's like so comforting to me. I can just, you know, go off forever about like The Expanse or like Game of Thrones. Yeah. (laughs) I can just go off forever. Um, But they have actually been really, really important to my development as like a person um, and as an artist because um, very often that was where I felt most reflected. Like yeah. I did not feel reflected. You know what I mean? It was like, so. that's where I found like points of connection much more often than, you know, I don't know, like stories of like a suburban family. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank in America. you. Thank, thank you. We only, have, we only have about a few like minutes left. Uh, so I just want to quickly yep. tell Ryan listeners who are listening to the truth of power show. I'm ready for Brooklyn. This is independent listener supported radio. So ready for Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community Promote me literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donation listeners like you. So please consider um, giving to uh, readyforbooking.org slash donate. Uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So all contributions are tax deductible. And you can consider giving through um, Smile, Amazon Smile, um, which is readyforbooking.org slash smile. Uh, Amazon, rather, slash Amazon. And you can uh, register readyforbooking as your Amazon Smile charity. And then also, uh, if you're listening to this in front of your computer, please download the mobile apps for iPhone or Android. The only apps are for iPhone and Google Play Store for Android. All right. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, Scott. Thank yes, you, everyone. Thank you, Cynthia. Great thank conversation. You. Thank you so much. Great conversation. Thank you. And thank you, Vijay and Scott. Take care. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye.